You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. Thanks for joining us. This is Michael Brown. It's Friday, which means you've got questions. We've got answers. Just a quick reminder, if you don't get my emails, you say, how would I know? Well, if you don't know, then you probably don't get them. Go to my website now, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Sign up there. You'll get a really neat free mini ebook, Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah, the first few days, you'll hear from us just about every day with some real neat background, more of my testimony, vision of our ministry. Folks seem to really appreciate those emails. And then uh, two, three times a week, you'll get an email from us uh, letting you know our latest articles, our latest videos. We normally have at least five new articles a week, multiple new videos each week available for you, all for free. And then special resources we put together. So make sure you sign up over at the website, sdrbrown.org. Number to call. Any question of any kind, anything you want to talk to me about, differ with me on, press me on, whatever, 866-34-TRUTH. That's the number to call. And with that, we go to Elizabeth in Albany, New York. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, so I am, I am a single woman in her 30s, and I've been... Lately, um, researching and studying about Christian marriage and what is the ideal Christian marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, I've come across some concepts or interpretations of the Bible that I find disturbing. So one of them being um, the, the concept of wife discipline and whether the Bible promotes or allows for wife discipline. Mm -hmm. And to what extent can the husband enforce his authority? And I am basing this on 1 Corinthians 9 to 10, where it talks about the woman being made for the, the man, and the man um, you know, not being made for the woman, and um, that he has, the husband has, uh, the woman, the wife should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. And I'm also basing it on Ephesians 5, 23, where it talks about the husband being the head of the wife. Now, um, I've also heard that so people would say, just like other authorities, such as like the government, the church, um, our employers, they, of course, enforce discipline when, um, you know, employees misbehave or um, there's a behavior issue. Because the Bible says the husband is the authority of his wife, he too can quote unquote discipline her if you know she doesn't obey or break house rules. And um, just one more thing, there's even this really disturbing movement within the church called Christian quote unquote. I, I put in quotes, but I don't think it is Christian, but Christian domestic discipline, which says that the Bible even allows the husband to um, corporally punish his wife, just like you know, you will punish a child. And this tends, tends to come from people, and this is not everyone who believes in patriarchy, of course, but 
people who believe this tend to be um, those who believe in biblical patriarchy, where the husband is essentially the, the lawgiver, judge, and punisher in the household. So obviously there's some glaring issues with this, but I want to know from your opinion, is there any, are there any actual biblical grounds for this type of marriage or household management, the concept of wife discipline, and to what extent can that go? Absolutely, absolutely not. Definitely not, okay. definitely not something that we model or follow. And honestly, uh, as Nancy and I are about to celebrate 45 years of marriage, and as many of our friends have been married for decades and decades, I'd, I've never met a single couple, Christian couple, any of our friends and associates, co-workers, all these years, who ever spoke in terms of a husband disciplining his wife. Disciplining children, yes, the Bible's explicit on it, right? Go through Proverbs, and it talks right. about it quite, quite explicitly. Now, what does it say in Ephesians 5? It does call for the wife to submit to her husband, but it calls for the husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church and to lay his life down for her. And, and any, any situation, marital situation, where the husband says to his wife, okay, you're grounded because you didn't listen to me, you can't go out of the house, is, is a marriage that's already in deep trouble. Something is, is terribly, terribly wrong. And I, I couldn't imagine a situation like that if Nancy and I had a deep conflict and, and, and I felt that she was not honoring my leadership then before God, I'd say, look, honey, God's, God's put me as the head of the house. I, I carry this ultimate responsibility. Let's, let's get to the root of what's going on here and work this through before God. Because in other words, as a couple, right. we would work it through and we would address it. And, you know, when you read through everything that Paul writes, there's always ultimately a mutuality of submission. There is an understanding that each one is ultimately submitted to the Lord. And if you think of this, that the way, the way a, a, a Christian slave owner in the New Testament is called to treat a slave. So that was the system of the day, and God's putting out liberational truths and redemptive truths in the midst of it that will ultimately lead to the, to the end of slavery. They're given instructions on a certain level, and the slaves on a certain level in terms of their master. Then you have parents disciplining children, what's taught in the Bible. You have no such language about husbands and wives, wives and husbands, none such whatsoever. And uh, if if there is a marriage situation, like you as a single woman, if your husband mm-hmm. said, "Well, well, I don't know, I I agree with that disciplining thing," and there there might have to be a time to discipline a wife, that's that's not the marriage you want. That's not the setting you right. want. And you know, to be to be totally honest, as as our call screener had just put up the subject, disciplining a wife, I thought. Is that a typo for discipling? Because that's the most bizarre thing I've seen. <laughs> so, of course, you got it exactly right. Yeah, so I understand how someone could take Scripture and try to make it say something, you know, make these logical jumps. But my question would be, since the Bible explicitly deals with the way parents can discipline children, the way it explicitly tells fathers in the New Testament not to embitter their children, then why doesn't right. it why doesn't it give the same thing now husbands when you discipline your wives don't go too far or if you beat them make sure they don't bleed no i, I mean that's right. that is utterly abusive unscriptural and wrong so I, I i do believe in a right marriage that when the husband is a godly man 
and leads in a godly way, that the wife is, is, is in a very safe and protected place and, and honors that headship and submits to it. And to me, though, Nancy, with Nancy and I, every major decision we've ever made, we made together. And, and I've right. learned over the years that when, when she had a strong warning about something and I didn't pray about it, the warning was, was real and I, I should have prayed about it. She ultimately absolutely looks to me to carry the burdens. She absolutely looks to me to, to be the, the head in that regard. I mean, she, she's the strongest person that I know in terms of strength of will, but she absolutely looks to me as, as the head of the home and like, you take responsibility, that's, that's on you. You know, so that, that's very much a protected situation for her, but we're making major decisions and we're going to relocate here or a major new ministry endeavor. I mean, some major, major thing. I couldn't imagine just going out and doing it to me. That'd be foolishness because the two of us are one. So, right. yeah, yeah, I, I would Stop. run for the, Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I completely agree with everything you just said, just to push back a little bit. Um, yeah. And this, I don't agree with this, but this is what I've, I've read. So people would say, or, or um, those who advocate for this would say that the Bible clearly states that the husband is an authority. And so if he cannot enforce his authority, then he doesn't have any authority at all. And so they, they jump to the fact that, well, with church, you know, if a Christian is living a sinful life, there's church discipline, and church is an authority over us, or there's spiritual authority. You know, if we have a job and, and we, if we, and we um, you know, go to work late or do something against policy, we can expect discipline. Same thing with the government, of course. The government can punish us when we break laws. So why, why isn't there any sort of enforcement on behalf of the husband? Yeah, I love the pushback. The enforcement is, husband, lay your life down for your wife. That's how, that's how he enforces things, by laying his life down and loving her as Christ loved the church and nurturing her in the word. Here's my simple pushback. I am not one with the government, okay? I, I am not one with the president or one with the police uh, right, but I am one with my wife. The two become one. Not not only so. The Bible explicitly tells us in Romans thirteen that the government has the sword of authority. The Bible explicitly tells us in First Corinthians five how to excommunicate and deal with things with church authority. The fact you have none of that, not even a hint of it, anywhere in Scripture in terms of a husband and wife relationship. Ultimately, there is something called separation. And if there are violations that go beyond things, you know, sexual immorality and things, the potential of divorce, but, but that's it. And again, the idea that someone would push for this is, is either bad cultural background or bad interpretation of Scripture. And I say, hey, just give me one example, one example above. Just one, one will suffice me where, where the, the husband in the Bible is going to physically enforce how—, how uh, give me one example of a godly beating, a husband beating or striking a wife in the Bible. Wow. Hey, but thank you. Thank you for the call. And you know the guy you don't want to marry for sure. Uh, that, you at least check that part. I'm obviously just talking to you. That's, that's self-evident. All right. God bless you. And we will be right back. 866-34-TRUTH. I tell you what, I don't want to get to another call right yet because otherwise you may not get your question out before the break. But if you don't yet have my book on Christian anti-Semitism, I think you'll find it to be a real eye-opener. 
and as I, I've said, and as I've doing many interviews on it, almost always the first question is, you said that this is a book you didn't want to write, but you had to write it. Why? When you start reading it, you realize why these issues are so pressing for a day. If you have read it and the book's been a blessing to you, please post a review on Amazon, wherever else uh, you, you go, Goodreads and things like that, just to help others because the, the bashers will come out who don't read the book or who attack it because they share those anti-Semitic feelings. So we like to balance those out with good, honest reviews. Okay, we'll be right back and get to more of your calls. 866-348-7884. That's the number to call. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, Brian, I, I agree with your comment there on Facebook. The idea of a husband physically disciplining a wife sounds like something that comes from a dangerous cult. Absolutely. Hey, welcome to The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions. We've got answers. We go to another Elizabeth, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Welcome to The Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure thing. And uh, I have a question I want to pose to you that I've been wondering about. But first, I just want to say thank you so much for your solid teaching. My husband and I really, you know, especially today in the church and everything that's out there and uh, uncertain times, it's really nice to have that solid, rooted, grounded voice that we can turn to. So thank you so much for all you do. Well, thank um, you. really appreciate it. Sure thing. Yeah. So... The scripture that I want to talk to you about today is Matthew 27, 51 to 53, where it mm-hmm. talks about uh, the ground shaking and the tombs opening and the saints that had fallen asleep um, coming out and appearing to many. And I just wanted your take on that, because I can't really make sense of it. Yeah, so the first thing that's interesting is that only Matthew records it. The second thing is we don't have any other ancient witnesses that record it. And the third thing is, it's a little hard to see at first glance, is it's saying that the tombs opened at the time of the crucifixion, and then the dead got out after the resurrection and walked around the city. Uh, that seems to be the, the order of things. In, in other words, they, the tombs open, and then they get out of the grave with the resurrection. Right. And then the fourth thing, and the obvious question is, what happened to them afterwards? So yeah. here's, here's the deal. All we know is what's written there. In other words, we don't have any other information beyond that. And Matthew obviously did write it. You know, someone said if it was so big, why didn't someone else write it? Well, Matthew wrote it and told us about it, and perhaps others didn't write it of the Gospels because Matthew did. I mean, there's debate about order and who wrote what, when and things. But it's quite extraordinary. It's obviously indicating the significance of the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and, and basically that this is symbolic of what happens to others. In other words, he's the first fruits. First Corinthians 15 tells us twice that the Messiah being raised from the dead is the first fruits of those who sleep. So his resurrection 
is is the 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 precursor of our future resurrection and this is almost almost to say it's such a powerful event it just brought other dead people up wow. with it you know almost the reverse of a bomb with c collateral damage you know, it was the the repercussions of the bomb spread this is kind of the the collateral powerful results of resurrection and we don't know anything else beyond that in, in other words did these people get taken up to heaven did they just disappear did they subsequently die again? We don't know. But it's simply there, just the awesomeness of the power that raised Jesus from the dead raised others as well. And that's what we get out of it. Beyond wow. that, it's all a matter of speculation. We just don't have any more information. That's great. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, Elizabeth. When I, I started studying biblical languages in college, and then learning more about the ancient cultures and and then reading some of the ancient church writings, I thought, wow, I'm going to get all this background and get all these questions answered, but there's still just lots of things <laughs> that we don't have any other information. And if you if you want to have like a, a really neat YouTube spot and get millions of people watching, then make up all kinds of things and claim that you discovered <laughs> all this and people come flocking to you. But the fact is... We just know what we know here. So, hey, appreciate the call and the kind right. words, Elizabeth. Thank you. Sure Have a thing. Good day. God bless. Hey, let me just say one one quick thing uh, in terms of of Elizabeth thanking me for for being scripturally grounded and things. I remember listening to a guy on the radio when I was first saved, and and he used to talk about how he was the only guy preaching sound doctrine on the radio. And I'm thinking maybe it was a little bit after I was saved. I remember hearing the guy, but he used to say that he's the only guy preaching sound doctrine on the radio. And you, you, you hear that, and you just have to smile to yourself. Does he, does he actually think that? And the moment you do, you've already disqualified yourself from that statement. The, the thing that we can all do, though, is do our best to push people into Scripture and really do scriptural thinking and really dig and learn. And if we can help you do that, then, then that'll be a great reward. All right, let us go to Cassie in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for taking my call. Sure thing. Uh, do you think there's ever a right time to pray Psalm 109, verse 8, which says, uh, for a government leader, which says, may his days be few, may another take his office. I think that Verse 8 is okay to pray, but the issue I have with it is that the remaining verses in the rest of the psalm are asking for, I think, horrible things to happen that I wouldn't want for my worst enemy, such as children be fatherless, wife a widow, children wandering about begging, creditors seizing everything, and such so on. Yet, I've heard a lot of people in the church say that they regularly pray this. And I know there's such a thing as the imprecatory psalms, but I was just wondering if you ever pray that. Absolutely not. I, I would not pray that over a government leader in America. If, if there was someone who was on a murderous tear, in, in other words, there is a terrorist going through our community and, and slaughtering people, I would ask God to intervene. I would ask God to rescue his people. I would ask God to bring that person to repentance. And if they won't repent, for God to deal with them. And I would leave it to God as to how to do that.
but I will absolutely not pray imprecatory psalms over government leaders here in America or in other, uh, other countries where it's a really dangerous thing just to be as candid as I can, it is a terribly dangerous thing that I'm witnessing online now. I have watched Christian leaders passionately going through this, praying these over those that they believe were involved with electoral fraud. It's like, oh, so that has now become the greatest evil of all evils in America, and you're going to call down curses on them and their children? Are you kidding me? I mean, what, what, have we completely forgotten the words of Jesus to pray for those who persecute you, to, to love our enemies, to overcome evil with good? So the use of the imprecatory Psalms in general opens up all kinds of issues for the very reasons you said, because you don't just pray that one verse. In other words, if you can't pray the verses that follow and pray for all kinds of horrific judgments to come on the future generations. If you can't pray that with a clean conscience before God, you better not just pull out that, that one verse. And it, it's us playing God. What about the people that looked at Donald Trump and felt that his leadership style was terribly destructive and therefore were praying that prayer about him and his, and his children? Or those that thought that, that George Bush got us involved in a bad war in Iraq, so we're going to pray that prayer for him. For those who thought that Barack Obama was a divisive leader, pray that prayer over him. I mean, wow. It, it, is, it is so contrary to the spirit of what Jesus taught. And instead, what, what Paul says, and, and he writes, remember, Cassie, he writes at a time when, when you have men like Nero as, as leaders of Rome. And in Romans 13, meant to be applied at times like that. And he says, in, 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 in Romans 13, that they are authorities that are placed by God in power. In other words, that there's no authority outside of God. So their, their role is to do good. They often do evil. So that's why you pray for them. First Timothy 2, what does he say? Pray for them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, I've gotten pushback and it is ugly and it is vile and it is destructive and it is a partisan, fleshly, political spirit that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit and the character of Jesus. I have posted on Facebook, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, the day of President Biden's inauguration. I posted 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, which tells us exactly how to pray for our leaders. That's, that's all the more. Praying for kings, we don't even have any, any authority in terms of getting them in or out of power, right? Here, we have a democratic republic. We can vote. But praying for kings, rulers, I said, I quoted the words of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. And then I said, let us pray. And I quoted those exact words for President Biden, Vice President Harris. I got blasted for that. Numerous people blasting, attacking. How dare you? You're weak. You're a baby killer. You're a communist. You're capitulating. I mean, it was utterly insane. I don't, I don't mean one or two. I mean dozens and dozens. I would never pray for that. I'd rather pray for the devil. That's like praying for the Antichrist. So the demonization of our political opponents or those who we, we have different ideologies with, the demonization of them, then the, the spirit of cursing, the spirit of, of calling down fire on our enemies, it is contrary to the gospel. So I, I pray for Joe Biden. And I pray for Kamala Harris that God would get hold of them, that he would transform them, that he would save them and give them a heart for righteousness and give them a heart for what is best 
for America? I'm not going to pray God shorten their days or God remove or curse them or curse their children. God forbid. And if you, you had real issues with President Trump, God forbid you prayed those kind of negative, destructive prayers for him. We're, in st- we're told how to pray. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, that we could live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and honesty. That's how Scripture instructs us to pray. As to our attitude towards them, bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. If you have an issue with that, take it up with Jesus. Cassie, thank you so much for asking the question. 866-34-TRUTH. We will be right back with more of your calls. Hey, when's the last time you read through the Sermon on the Mount? You may want to give it a read. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome to the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. Let me read scripture to you, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43, the words of our Savior. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy. No, that's not what you heard. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, is that what we should do? What does Jesus say? But I tell you, love your neighbor. No, no, he doesn't. He says, love your enemy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do you think Saul of Tarsus, who was a real bad guy, how do you think he became the mightiest apostle? Certainly there was prayer for him. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our heart attitude should be one of great love, even for those who are our enemies so that if you cut us, we bleed love. Let the world see that, our love one for another, and our love even for our enemies. All right, let's go to Lucas in Dalian Springs, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. So um, I've been doing a study on how confession of sins was done throughout the Scriptures, and I've been looking at what was instructed to the people of Israel in the Law of Moses, and one, that, one passage that stands out is Leviticus 16.21, talking about um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, how the high priest was instructed to confess over the goat that would be sent into the wilderness, some, basically all the sins of the children of Israel. So do you know whether the, the priest, they would make a record of the sins confessed whenever members of the community would bring a sacrifice for sins, um, as outlined in passages such as Numbers 5, 5 through 8? Would they keep a record for the Yom Kippur confession, or was it done some other way? And also, what do you think is the most direct New Covenant tie-in to that? Yeah, I appreciate the question. There's no evidence that there was a record 
of sins kept and that angrily they would now confess all of those. And that, that would have been obviously quite a long confession. The best we understand, yeah. it, it was generic. And then what, we, what has been preserved and developed over the centuries in the synagogue is a very comprehensive list, just about every imaginable sin. So if you've ever been to a synagogue service, traditional service on Yom Kippur, there's, there are long prayers that you pray for this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin. I mean, you cover a whole gamut of things to cover the, the nation. So that, that's the best we can understand, that these things would have been confessed generically, and then it got into longer and longer lists as prayers would, would develop over a period of, of time. The principles, though, of confession are, are important. We have in, in the book of Proverbs where it teaches that whoever covers his sins will not prosper, but, but whoever confesses and forsakes them uh, will have mercy. We know that when we pray according to the Lord's Prayer, we're asking God to forgive us for our sins, also called debts. So there is that, making that known to God. We do know that in First John 1 specifically, it says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness in, in 1 John 1, 9. And that verse is ongoing in the Greek. In other words, it's not the confession of sin for salvation, but, but rather the confession of sin for cleansing, for washing on a relational level. You know, we, we do have the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, where the, the tax collector can't even raise his head and just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So you have those types of, of confessions. But generically, 1 John 1, 9 is, is the ongoing cleansing of our, of our lives. So there's the coming to God, recognizing I'm a sinner, asking for mercy, being saved by grace. And now relationally, just like with a husband and wife, if there's something wrong, you fix it and get it right. Relationally, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make God into a liar and the truth isn't in us. So that would be a New Testament parallel. But in terms of the annual atoning forgiveness, you know, Hebrews is clear. We have the once-for-all atonement through the cross. Awesome. Yeah, great insight. Thank you. All right. Thank you for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Ryan in San Diego, California. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. First of all, I would like to say how much uh, I appreciate your ministry, ministering in the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And also wanted to say that um, in the same way that uh, many people cursed Jesus and then later came back and cried out to salvation, I do believe that many people who have been um, speaking evil against you and your ministry, I believe that when the dust settles, many of them are actually going to come to your ministry to receive truth and healing. So I just want to say thank you and bless you in that way. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, listen— we, we've all, every one of us at one point in life or another makes a mistake and has to go back to someone and say, hey, I misjudged you or I, I acted wrongly. Please forgive me. And, and I've received so much grace from God over the years, his mercy as I've had to go back to him, Lord, I blew it. Forgive me. Or tell my wife or friends, I'm sorry, I blew that. Forgive me. That I want to extend that same mercy and grace to others. And yet, look, sometimes people are upset. You know, I've, I've been upset. Nancy tells me something I don't want to hear. And then an hour later, it's like, honey, you're right. Thank you. So there are people that are upset with me now because of things I've said either about the president, President Trump, or things about 
you know, things surrounding him or the failed prophecies, and they're upset with me. Because they love God and they love truth, yeah, I, th- I think they'll be back. And they don't need to grovel. Let's, we just move on together. But but I, I do Amen. expect that, yeah, because uh, I've had to do the Absolutely. same thing myself, yeah. Yes, sir. So my question is about the Trump prophets and specifically a reference to the movie The Lion King. In that movie, the main villain was named Scar, and he had a large group of hyenas that were following him because he fed them. And at the end of the movie, when Scar was unable to feed those hyenas anymore, they actually killed him. So as I've read many of these social media comments from so many of these Trump prophet followers, they, they actually emit that same spirit of a hyena. I'm sure you've gotten lots of those comments as well. Um, and while it was a highly a possible that Trump would be elected at one point in time, many of those prophets received a lot of praise from these followers. But as many of them recanted those prophecies, the hyenas did start to come out. So my question is, do you believe that the Trump prophets who have yet to repent could possibly be motivated by the fear of their followers in the same way that Scar may have feared the hyenas and likewise in the same way that Saul feared the people more than God? Yeah, so here are my thoughts. Uh, Obviously, you're asking a a broad generic question, and and only God knows what's in, in people's hearts. I always do my best to believe the best about someone unless I have indisputable or clear evidence to the contrary, right? So in terms of someone's motivation or why they do a certain thing, that's what I try to do. If God gives me an insight and that's confirmed factually, great. But, but otherwise, I do my best to believe the, the best. So why would someone still be hanging on? and still saying, no, no, you watch. You watch something's going to happen in a few days, or by April, Biden's going to be replaced by Trump. Why would they still be be hanging on? In, in my view, if I'm looking at this, believing the best that I can, it wouldn't be so much fear of of their followers turning on them, as, as happened, say, with Jeremiah Johnson or some others, when, when he apologized for prophesying wrongly and repented, it, w- it wouldn't be that as much as one to say that they're wrong is quite shattering. When you've been that that sure that long, to say that you're wrong is very humbling. You know, in the in in 1982, as God began to deal with me that I had left my first love, and that scholarship had become an idol in my life, it's very difficult for me to admit to that because that had been my path for years, and this was now this is now my wisdom and my maturity. Well, there was some wisdom and maturity, but it was really mixed with leaving my first love. And, and that was the biggest thing, my pride in saying I was wrong. Even getting saved, that was a bigger issue to me than drugs, my, my pride and having to humble myself and say I was wrong. So I think when you really believe you've heard God and that you put your whole heart and soul into it and you feel you've been confirmed in it, to say you're wrong, man, that's shattering. And, and, and then with that, if you say you're wrong, perhaps the fear thing is, if I've built up a following, here, I'm, I'm teaching Jewish apologetics, I'm, I'm known for debating rabbis and doing all that, to get up and say, you know, I really haven't understood Messianic prophecy correctly, all my books, are the, they're wrong. It's like, what? What? So th- that's, I, if, if there's a fear, it, it doesn't strike me as much the fear of the people turning on them, but of disappointing your followers, of of you know, holding yourself up as some kind of authority or some kind of voice, and, and now you're wrong and proven to be wrong is devastating. So, it's, but it's terribly dangerous. It's terribly dangerous 
I just want to appeal to, to everyone that's still believing for something to happen. Please don't let this continue to just go on and on and on and on. And then you just kind of walk on your way. And to every leader, don't be a hit and run leader. Don't, don't, don't set your people up for hurt and, and, and despair and disillusionment. And then when things don't pan out, you just kind of go on. No, no, you got to stop and own it. So that's an appeal from the heart. All right, thank you, sir, for the call. I appreciate it. By the way, I never saw Lion King. Uh, anyway, all right, uh, let's go to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Joseph, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. Um, my question is, um, do you have any tips on self-study for ancient Hebrew? Well, there are a few different ways to approach this. One is you just get one of the standard books, get on Christian Book or Amazon and just look for Biblical Hebrew, and you'll see books like Gary Practico and others that are, that are basic grammars, and then you can get them where they have keys for, for lessons or for tests or things like that. So that's the most basic level. And I, I taught myself Biblical Hebrew out of a, a very technical grammar, Thomas Landon, which, which I wouldn't recognize for, for self-teaching, but that's, that's how I went through it while I was taking modern Hebrew in college. So you just got one of the books. Another thing is that you can get some that have CDs, DVDs that go with them. So if you just look for learning biblical Hebrew with, with a CD or DVD set that takes the self-help to a little higher level, you get a little more instruction, a little more practical uh, mentoring. The, the third option is that you can actually learn with a teacher online, that there are different programs so you can just type learn biblical Hebrew online. So you're going to be paying more for that. But then you'll actually have a teacher giving you lessons or you'll be part of a class. So either just get one of the books like Gary Practico, one of the others on basics of biblical Hebrew, get one that's supplemented with CD or DVD, or get yourself into an online class. All right, best to you. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, I wish I had a few more hours to get to all your calls, but we'll get to as many as we can. 866-34-TRUTH. And we start with Stephen in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, welcome to the line of fire. Dr. Brown, thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, do you, do you have us turned down there on your radio there, or are you listening? Sorry, no, I, uh, I can hear you now. I, okay, um, go ahead. It was just noisy outside, sorry. Yep, go ahead. Okay, um, you were talking earlier this week about, like, QAnon and conspiracy theories and stuff, and you wanted to hear from people who had kind of come out of that. Yeah. Or if they have family members that are still interested in it. And a few years ago, I was, I was like, deep in this stuff. I was deep in every conspiracy out there. I didn't, I didn't believe in all of them, but I was obsessed with trying to figure out, like, which ones were real and which ones were fake. And I kind of came out of it um, about a year and a half ago or so. And uh, I figured I could just kind of give a little bit of insight into... Yeah, what, what, how to move. what drew yeah. you in first? Just in, in short, obviously well, this could be a long conversation, but in short, yeah. what drew you in? I'll try to keep it brief. Yeah. I, I think what kind of draws people in is there's an aspect to it of 
like having this like secret knowledge. There's if you read the Book of Enoch, I think like the fallen angels were sharing yeah. forbidden knowledge with people, and it's just it's very alluring um, learning about these things. And I think as Christians, you know, we're we're creatures of faith, and I think a lot of times these things have very promising, um, I guess, promises to them in the the truth that they're trying to share with you, the, the message they're trying to share with you. And uh, it, it definitely, it's it's addicting. Um, you know, I didn't read the Bible. I wasn't really interested in, I didn't understand having a, like a relationship with God at that time, but having a, a the skeptical mind from being in conspiracies, you know, I, I applied that to the Bible. I actually, I, I didn't grow up in a church that talked about the spiritual gifts or anything. And then I was 28 years old when I first heard about like speaking in tongues and stuff. So I started reading compulsively the New Testament, and instantly I could tell it was real. I was like, these spiritual gifts are real. Mm. Scripture is real. God is real. I was like, I, I need to turn my life around. And uh, I've just been, you know, I, I compulsively read the New Testament for like eight months straight. And then I think in about three months, I read the entire Bible twice through. And, mm. uh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a lot more clear-headed these days, but... Um, it's important, you know, I, I've been following you on Twitter and just some of the things you've been talking about this week, and it's a heated conversation. I mean, you bring up QAnon, and it is, it is spicy. I mean, you've got people, you've got families being torn apart over this stuff. Yeah. And I, I, at the end of the day, you know, whether we believe in it or not, people got to, everyone needs to just calm down. I mean, people need to relax. Um well, yeah, Stephen. When, when you're being when when there's a spirit of fear that's being appealed to and even even provoked, when you really believe in the worst possible conspiracy theory, then how can you calm down? And there's no connection to God with it, no faith with it, no peace sure. of heart and mind, no thought of hey, well, let me just share the gospel with my neighbor. That's something I can do. You you, you are caught up in this other other world. So I'm I'm so pleased to hear that the Lord worked in your life and helped you and. You know, the thing that's so sad, when I had Professor James Beverly on with me to talk about his book, QAnon Deception, although I knew it was a real issue and he had devoted months of day and night research to putting this together and writing the book and work with the team and really did an amazing job on it, what, what grieved me, shocked me, pained me was the amount of response, pushback, from folks following me on social media, you know, our Facebook page is our biggest by far. And immediately I thought, if, if I didn't know that this thing was evil and even cult-like, I knew it now, yeah. based on the most severe responses. And what I also found that was so painful to see, because I care about these people. I don't, I don't know most of them personally, but I care about them. I want to see them blessed and thriving in God, is that let's say I have a controversial guest on, on one subject of an issue. People say, hey, Dr. Brown, would you consider having someone else on the other side? I said, yeah, you bet. Always different with QAnon. The moment I said James Beverly's going to come on and talk about this, I got, I will never listen to you again. You're part of the deep state. You are owned. I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. And the, the, the sense, the hypersensitivity to it. So, Stephen, as, as you've really come to know the Lord, that's the biggest thing, to know him, to have that intimacy and then to experience his reality and for word to fill your heart and mind. As that happens, we're just not going to go the way of, of mass deception. Hey, thank you for calling and sharing that. I really, really appreciate it. And, and listen, friends, no condemnation if you sincerely thought, hey, 
or this is for justice, or this is to stop child trafficking, or there's evil and corruption. There's, the world is filled with evil and corruption, and Satan is ultimately the conspiratorial leader behind it, and the weapons we have are gospel weapons by which we fight. All right, let us go to Mauricio in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How are you, Dr. Bowen? Thank you for for answering this call. So yeah. cool what you're doing. I, I really appreciate it. Um, first and foremost, I, I've been following you for a couple of while. Um, I've been just immersed with your with your debate and, and the sort of topics that, that you talk about. And so my question is, me being a, a mature believer, not having years of, of experience in the faith, and just seeing how how someone as passionate as you and just so just so set, like standing on the truth of God and just seeing your passion for it, how does a mature believer go from you know I will, I believe in Christ and I want to give my life to Christ even if it costs my own life. Just by seeing like all the disciples and the persecution that they had to go through, I mean, what could a Christian even expect? Yeah. And seeing how much you know knowledge and schooling that you have, um, it, it surely it doesn't just take a mature believer to just make that decision. I'm guessing through all your experience, um, you've come to that realization. How, how do you? How does? Well, my question would be, how does a mature believer get to that sort of mindset? Yeah, I, I think, Mauricio, it's, it's little decisions we make day by day, and then in the crisis moment, making the right decision. In, in other words, it's not like you prepare yourself one day, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be strong enough if they take me off to prison and torture me that I won't deny the Lord, because in ourselves we'll all fail. Or if they put a gun to my head, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build up to being strong enough for that to not deny Jesus. So it's, it's every day we make little decisions. We make little decisions to obey, little decisions to honor the Lord, little decisions not to be ashamed of him, little decisions to, to not compromise our conviction for the sake of convenience. And then that becomes lifestyle. That becomes who you are. And then you have a crisis moment. You're going to be fired from your job and lose the career of your dreams if you hold to your Christian values. I have to hold to my values. See, because you've been making the little decisions. And then when that day comes, you'll be strong. And if you're strong there, there'll be the grace in an even greater test. So it's the day-by-day decisions of obedience, walking intimately with the Lord, where you fall short, being quick to repent, follow the truth where it leads, even if it leads to inconvenient, difficult conclusions. Be determined to follow the truth. And then when there's a crisis moment, you're going to leave, have to leave everything or lose everything following the Lord. You'll make that right decision at that moment because there's been that steady pattern. Conversely, if we compromise, 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 a little here, a little there, when the test comes, we'll, we'll collapse. In other words, if, if I can't run a tenth of a mile without collapsing, I'm not going to be able to run a mile on that day. But if I've been working out regularly, regularly, regularly and pushing myself, then I have to push a little harder. It's there. It's built in. And then we just trust God. We recognize our own weakness in ourselves and lean hard on him. Hey, thank you, sir, for the question. Uh, let's go to Jamal in Albany, New York. Time is short, so dive right in with your question, sir. Hello? Hey, Jamal, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I got a question about about the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, he worshipped Yahweh, right? 
He worshiped the one true God. Yeah, well, I pronounce his name Yahweh, but go ahead. Yeah. But I got a question. In the book of Acts, chapter, what is it, 28 and 25, you know, Paul is saying that the Holy Ghost was speaking through the prophet Isaiah before he was murdered. Okay. So I got a question, because, you know, a lot of people, they think that, they believe that Yahweh is a demon, and he's not actually God. Who believes that? A lot of people they believe that that he is not that he is not the actual God, but he that is one of Satan's his 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 supreme names. Yeah. So so here's the deal, Jamal. Uh, Jesus tells us in John 12 that Isaiah saw him, that Isaiah saw Jesus himself, and the the name that you mentioned, Yahweh, you pronounced it differently, but in Hebrew, Yud Hey. Vav hey, so in English we'd say W H, excuse me, Y H W H, occurs about six thousand three hundred times in the Hebrew Bible, and that is God's name. That is who He is. He is Yahweh. Older Christian translations said Jehovah. So anyone that says He's a lesser deity or demon, that's someone who mocks the Bible. That's someone who takes the Bible and throws it out. Because that name is found more than any other name in the entire Bible, more than the name of Jesus. Yud Hey Vav Hey, W Y H W H, Yahweh, older translations, Jehovah. That is the name of the covenant God of Israel and the one who most fully expresses himself in the person of his son, Jesus. Hey, friends, let's fight error with truth. Second Corinthians 13, 8, Paul writes, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth.